From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're taking a look at growth uncertainty, which has been on the rise given the age of the economic expansion, now the longest on record, and risks from trade tensions, as well as other political uncertainties like Brexit. Here's Christine Lagarde, chairwoman of the International Monetary Fund and newly nominated ECB president earlier this year. The bottom line is that after two years of solid expansion, the world economy is growing more slowly than expected, and risks are rising. Growth concerns have been at the heart of the dovish pivot we've seen from central banks this year, and markets and our economists alike now expect the Fed to start delivering rate cuts as soon as this month. Here's Fed Chair Jerome Powell testifying on Capitol Hill just last week. At our June meeting, we indicated that in light of increased uncertainties about the economic outlook and muted inflation pressures, we would closely monitor the implications of incoming information for the economic outlook and would act as appropriate to sustain the expansion. The market reaction to all of this has been noteworthy. Typically, when growth concerns rise, investor demand shifts towards less risky assets. That means investors usually buy bonds, causing yields to decline, and sell stocks, causing equity prices to fall. But recently, we've generally seen the reverse, with bond yields declining while stock prices have risen to all-time highs. Many think this is because Fed cuts are just protecting against a downturn rather than actually responding to one. But others think stocks and bonds are sending very different messages about growth, with bond investors more worried about recession, while equity investors are focusing on the upside. Of course, markets are fickle these days, and this pattern between stocks and bonds has waxed and waned. But the broader questions remain. How concerned about growth should we really be? And are Fed actions, which some believe have been too responsive to markets, in the end helping or hurting the growth outlook from here? The answer to these questions and implications for asset performance are top of mind. I first turned to legendary investor Ray Dalio, founder and co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater Associates, to see what he makes of these developments. Dalio thinks the recent market action makes sense, but is worried about an adverse environment for growth and assets ahead. We're really grappling with the question of you know, whether there is a disconnect between stocks and bonds and what they're pricing in terms of growth. Stock values are fundamentally determined by the present value of expected cash flows. And when interest rates go down, that's a positive for stocks in a present value sense. So when I look at the decline in interest rates, and the move to a more stimulative Fed policy. I look at that as a temporary positive effect on stocks, but that it is a non-sustainable effect on stocks for the long run because there is a limitation as to how far interest rates can go down and how quantitative easing can work. So when interest rates go down, It causes the present value of assets to rise, but um, it also means that there's less stimulation in the bottle because you get closer to interest rates approaching zero. Think of this as a, a stimulant that is in a bottle and it's running out. 
So if you use it, yes, you can you can get a kick out of the economy and a kick out of the markets, but the important big shift in the world will be coming when monetary policy is not very effective, when they're essentially out of the stimulant that is in the bottle. While Dalio is concerned that the Fed and other central banks are running out of stimulus, he also thinks the Fed's shift to a more dovish monetary policy was appropriate and, if anything, could have come sooner. And he doesn't give much credence to the view that the Fed has been too responsive to bond market concerns. Here's what he had to say on the Fed. They would worry too much about a strong economy with limited capacity to expand, and they were worried about the combination of the fiscal stimulation and the low rates of employment and that inflation would accelerate. They were very worried about the classic cycle happening. In my opinion, too worried about that. And so going into year end, they over-tightened it and they um, then did a sharp reversal. My opinion, an appropriate sharp reversal because the inflation risks and the growth risks are exaggerated. But ultimately, there is a narrative in the markets now and that the Fed has been overly responsive to bond market pricing. So just to clarify, you don't agree with that. That view doesn't carry much weight with me. I think that people who say that presume that the Fed thinks the bond market is right. And one can conjecture that the bond market sees something that the Fed needs to follow, or one could say that the yield curve becoming inverted and what is discounted in the price means something that the Fed should be more cautious. Those are reasonable statements, but realistically, you have to ask, what is that something that is causing the long rates to go down? World economies slowing for a number of reasons. And then, of course, we're fairly late in the cycle. We have the greater wealth gap and populism polarity and geopolitical issues, uh, particularly with China. So if you were to look at the world economy as a whole, you would say that there should be an easier monetary policy. And if you look at the interest rate differentials and the currency movement and what the Federal Reserve can do, it's reasonable that interest rates would go down and that they would be led by the market at a faster pace um, than, uh, than the Fed. Goldman Sachs strategists agree that recent market actions make sense amid rising growth uncertainty. They actually argue that despite very high index levels, you can see growth concerns reflected across risky assets in the outperformance of higher quality and defensive sectors in equity, credit, and commodity markets. So bond markets are less of an outlier than they first appear. But Jan Hatzius, the firm's chief economist, says these growth concerns are overdone. If anything, he's more concerned about the direction of the Fed and is less convinced that the benefits of easing here outweigh the potential costs, namely the increased likelihood of a so-called hard landing for the U.S. economy. How worried should we really be about U.S. and global growth? It seems to me that the growth outlook, while clearly not as strong as in 2017, 2018, is still pretty decent. We're looking for growth in the 2% range in the second half of this year, and then actually a little bit more than that in 2020, uh, which would still put us a touch above our estimate of the underlying trend pace of growth, which is in the 175 range. So uh, yeah, we are, I would say, cautiously optimistic that we're still going to see decent growth. 
one reason for this is the easing in financial conditions, which has taken place really for most of this year, and again, more clearly in recent weeks, which should mean that the impulse from financial conditions to growth is going to become somewhat more positive as the year goes goes on. That should be visible in things like home building, where there's a very direct impact from mortgage rates, and also personal consumption, where equity prices obviously matter. So how much should the recent shift toward an even more dovish bias from the Fed, which has recently prompted us to assume that we are going to see some cuts this year, how much should that temper concerns about growth and inflation disappointments? I mean, does that really move the needle at all? Well, I think it helps. Uh, Easier monetary policy, I think, does have real effects. I think in the U.S., it's relatively easy to generate positive impulses because the funds rate is 2.4%, strictly in positive territory. You can lower the funds rate. You can thereby generate easing in financial conditions that will have an impact on growth. And of course, some of this is already front-loaded through market pricing, anticipating Fed cuts. In the U.S., To me, it doesn't look particularly necessary. I mean, to me, it actually looks like the economy is fine, even without monetary easing. So here, it's really not a question of whether monetary easing is effective, but whether it's necessary. Do you think the Fed is setting up for a policy mistake by intending or signaling that they're on the verge of cuts? It's a, it's a question of costs and benefits. So I think when the economy is generally fine and you're maybe providing a little bit more additional stimulus, the benefit is relatively limited. And it's possible that, you know, ultimately you overstimulate the economy. You push the unemployment rate down to a level that is too low to be sustained in the in the longer term with inflation at about 2%. And then you need to increase the unemployment rate over time. And historically, it's been very difficult to do that without a recession. There's never been an increase in the three-month average of the unemployment rate of more than 35 basis points that wasn't associated with a recession. And I think that's probably a somewhat bigger issue now than it might have been in comparable episodes in the past, Uh, because of some of the politics and some of the influence on the Fed from the electoral calendar, for example, we are going into an election year. If they do deliver some insurance cuts in 2019, uh, as we're, we're, we're projecting, it will be much harder to unwind those insurance cuts in 2020 if it turns out that they're not needed or maybe even counterproductive. Um, now, if it was a very clear-cut case, I think they would hike in 2020. But at the margin, it's just going to be harder as you approach a probably very contentious presidential election. So do you think the market is too concerned about growth and maybe not concerned enough that the Fed could be heading ultimately in a counterproductive direction? Yes, um, I, I am concerned about that. I think that the market is somewhat too concerned on growth. I think the market's too low on inflation. I think the market's underestimating the extent to which the current weak inflation numbers are driven by more special factors. I think what 
Chairman Powell said at the May press conference, not the June press conference, but the May press conference, about the outliers in the core PCE numbers and the much stronger message sent by the Dallas Fed's trimmed mean PCE index. All of those things I thought were correct then and they remain correct. So I think we'll see see a rebound in inflation. I'm not as concerned about inflation expectations as many in the markets, partly because I think that break-even inflation compensation in the bond market is not a great measure of inflation expectations. The surveys actually still look consistent with inflation expectations that are anchored around 2%. So yeah, I mean, I think I have a different sense of the relative risks and uh, therefore also a different sense of where you're more likely to make a mistake. I think the, the, the dominant market view is that the Fed's been too slow and they continue to be too slow and they need to move expeditiously in the direction of easier policy. Uh, my view is that if they move too quickly uh, and too aggressively, then they're at risk of overstimulating the economy and thereby raising the risk of a, of a hard landing, you know, maybe not in 2020, but uh, at some point not in the not distant future. Jan is also somewhat concerned about the amount of political pressure on the Fed, which poses a threat to its independence. So obviously the other factor here has been the White House's pressure on the Fed to keep rates low or cut further. How much do you think that's been a factor? Do you think there is reason to be concerned about the independence of the Fed? Well, I think there is uh, some reason to be uh, to be concerned. I mean, the pressure has been very overt and the uh, desire to appoint political loyalists to uh, Fed positions has definitely been there. So there has been talk about firing or demoting uh, Chair Powell. It's a little unclear how far that uh, that went. But, you know, all of those things are, of course, threats to the uh, independence of the of the Federal Reserve. I think the, the, the Fed is still independent, still does act independently. I don't think that Chair Powell and his colleagues take orders from the White House. However, I also think that there is sort of an indirect avenue for pressure on the Fed that goes via the bond market, because clearly the bond market is responsive to political chatter and reports of much more dovish appointees for the Board of Governors or demands for for rate cuts. And to the extent that the FOMC puts more weight on bond market pricing and setting uh, its own policy, I think that is a way in which the political pressure can actually have some impact. So for me, this is another reason to be somewhat skeptical that we should be putting all that much weight on uh, bond market pricing and to be a bit more resistant to the idea that the Fed should basically just deliver what the bond market's pricing. So what would this slightly more optimistic outlook mean for the sustainability of the broader rallies we've seen in pretty much everything this year? Even if growth holds up as our economists expect, Goldman Sachs research thinks we're still likely to see two Fed rate cuts and a broader bond rally prevail. But that won't do much to boost stocks going forward, according to our chief U.S. equity strategist, David Costin, who sees growth and policy uncertainty keeping equities moving sideways through year end. As for positioning, our strategist recommends staying the course in defensive, high-quality assets. But Ray Dalio's advice? Rebalance existing portfolios with an eye towards diversification and potentially add assets that are less popular and provide intrinsic diversification, such as gold and Chinese assets, both of which are somewhat controversial these days. So is now the time to start reducing risk? What do you recommend for investors in terms of positioning at this point as we're, we're heading towards all of these risks? 
question really is how does one reduce risk? Because to me, going to any one asset during this period of time increases risk. People think that going to cash reduces risk. That's only risk in a standard deviation type of way. But when you have negligible interest rates below either the inflation rate or the nominal GDP growth rate, and you pay taxes on that, you're not going to get any return on that. Do you go to equities? Do you go to bonds? What is risk? To me, risk is best dealt with by diversifying well. Cash over the long run is the worst performing asset class and therefore the riskiest asset class if you're looking at return. It just has less volatility to it. So I think when we're looking at this in the years ahead, we have to think about where is there a good diversification. I think that the world now is very leveraged long. Now, what I mean by that is everybody is owning assets, and there's been a, quite a bit of leveraging of those assets through company buybacks, through private equity, and so on. So I think that we're relatively late in the cycle, and they're fairly leveraged long. And then I think the question is, what is a good store of wealth? So I think diversification has to be key. And I think that there are areas that are not adequately diversified, that could diversify a portfolio. For example, I think that gold and China are uh, two areas that are underweighted and have more merit in portfolios. Just even my talking about gold makes it sound like, wow, that's a kooky investment. <laughs> gold is an alternative currency. Think of it as a currency. When you think about what currency you would want in this uh, fiat monetary system that's overly indebted, in which there's going to be greater political and tax and risks on capital, that there's some merit behind having some position in gold, by way of example. I think China is an important place to diversify into, in that I think it's very controversial now. Investors are not used to it being in their portfolio. I think investors put too much emphasis on what's conventional and cap-weighted measurements. And I'd say in my history, I've watched that, and that's been a mistake. They're, they're just not comfortable being in markets that they haven't been in already. Once they go into those markets, they quickly get comfortable being in that market. As an institutional investor for many years, I can remember when pension funds thought it was risky to go into equities from bonds. I think China is like that. They're big markets now. In market capitalization, the equity market second to the U.S. market, the bond market, including the government and corporate bond market in China, second to the U.S. market. It's just beginning to open up. And then if you're going to say diversification, where are the competitors that might erode your market share and the geographic diversification and the size of the markets being so large relative to your position and where there's growth and so on? China. And I think that if people look back on it in time and say, I didn't have any exposure to China at the beginning of the 21st century, when China is the second largest economy growing fast and their capital markets growing fast, you'd have to say something is wrong with that. So the main theme is 
diversify well in assets that are underweighted and that have a lot of intrinsic diversification and that might do well in the type of environment I'm describing. That's where we'll leave it for this episode. Amid all of this uncertainty, only one thing is certain, economic data and Fed developments ahead that should provide some clarity on the outlook for growth and markets will be top of mind. I'm Allison Nathan, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.